Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast. My name is Tom Parker Bowles and I'm thrilled to be joined by Josh Nyland at the iconic Fortnum and Mason store in Piccadilly, London. Josh is an immensely talented Australian chef who is in London to promote his first book, The Whole Fish Cookbook. Together with his wife, Judy, they founded the critically acclaimed St. Peter's Restaurant and Fist Butchery in Sydney. What's more, he's educating chefs around the world with his groundbreaking approach to seafood and gill-to-fin cooking. One quote by Jamie Oliver says he is one of the most impressive chefs of a generation, and Nigella Lawson is quoted as saying, you're a genius. So without further ado, can you take me back to the beginning when your love of cooking first started? My love of cooking, I think, came from the first interactions of feeding people, like to have my mother and father and sister in the room and then go and do the groceries and find some things that I wanted to cook for them, finding a recipe, whether it was in a magazine or a cookbook, and you follow it and you do your little bits and pieces that you want creatively to the dish and then serve it to them. And I just enjoyed watching them eat it and getting some feedback for it and seeing if they really liked it, what they didn't like, and then trying it again the next time. I think it was more that form of generosity. I think it's one of the most generous things that you can do for another person and I and I really like that and that's why St. Peter's got an open kitchen just so I can watch that interaction. And was your mother a good cook? <laughs> I got asked to speak somewhere and I got asked that question and they said, what would you give her out at 10? <laughs> I felt quite bad and said four. But um, it was a meat and three veg kind of growing up. Everything was delicious. My mother used to cook me chicken pies when I was unwell, which I can remember were very good. But my grandmother made a scones. You know, there was fairly humble offering, but it was delicious. But no one had a cooking background. And it's a very traditional Aussie sort of culinary upbringing. But you do talk in the book about tin tuna, about yeah. certain types of fish you ate when you were growing up. Did fish always excite you? Did Were you a fisherman? Did you, you know, you know Australia's no. <laughs> a lot of coast, but did you love fish or, or not at all? Yeah, I mean, I was half an hour from the beach and then a 15-minute drive from the local river. And mum used to take us there fishing when she got sick of us being in the house for too much we went there and and we would catch things like flathead and you know bream and things like that but we'd come back to watch mum gut the fish under the garden tap outside and then take it back in dust the flour on them and then pan fry them and that was my interactions with fresh fish like you mentioned with the tin fish i had no idea tuna was like a huge wonderful fish all i had the reference of was this gray you know cylinder in a can and the same for salmon and the same for anchovies i had no bearings on what fish was and so there was no great affinity with fish later when i started training that i i put it on this pedestal that it was so difficult and so challenging and the fragility of it was quite enticing and interesting and that's why i wanted to explore it leaving school did you decide you wanted to go into the culinary world you wanted to be a cook a chef yeah in australia it's 14 nine months when you can kind of start working (laughs) it's very specific (laughs) i took a job at a cafe and i was washing dishes and doing all those things making coffee and making toasted sandwiches and then eventually i took an apprenticeship and i i had to ask my mum and dad if it was okay if i left school in year 10 so i'd finished year 10 and just before i turned 16 i'd signed up for a first year apprenticeship put my head down and started working full-time and I wanted to do that as opposed to waiting for two or three hospitality classes during the week at school so I wanted to kind of immerse myself in it yeah I went about taking on this role which was half an hour from home so it was a good way to learn how to drive mum would kind of 
come in to pick me up and then I'd put the L's on and then drive home. How did your sort of culinary career advance after that? You, you started obviously with the Toasties and that, yeah. moving into a more sort of yeah. uh, classic restaurant. Yeah, it was slightly more formal. There was a kind of celebrated pub in the area in Newcastle called the Queen's Wharf Brewery and it was positioned right on the water and the team that was doing the kitchen there broke away from there and they opened a place called the Brewery Restaurant which was in a new development in Newcastle so it was all very flash and it was well put together. The husband and wife team that were in the kitchen that put a great amount of effort into their team. They almost foregoed like all of their possible awards that they could have won for the training of these young people that were in their kitchen the food was like inadverted commas modern australian like every (laughs) restaurant in australia you know it it was fairly seafood heavy menu uh, without putting a focus on it and it was right in front of the water so it was just a nice place for newcastle to interact with and quite a friendly atmosphere but it was slightly formal and the prices were relative to the kind of produce that they were buying And partway through the year of working uh, in Newcastle, because I was sick as a boy, I had cancer when I was eight, I got to go to a Cancer Foundation fundraising lunch. And at that event, I met my future mentor, Peter Doyle, from Est Restaurant back home. He came to do this lunch. I was already in the kitchen kind of with my team as well. And I got asked to go out and speak. And they had images of me as a boy, like unwell. And I was telling everybody about what had happened. Came down off stage and I came back into the kitchen and Peter kind of hit me and said, why didn't you say that you were part of the whole (laughs) proceedings and things? And eventually then Peter asked me to go down and eat. You know, I was 10 minutes early to my booking and he didn't realize that I was actually taking the the offer seriously to come for lunch because it was just the very next day after (laughs) that I got on the train and I went, you know, I was 10 minutes early for my booking. I sat down, they put me on the best table. I was by myself. I was... 16 years old so you know not drinking obviously peter came out and delivered all my food throughout the whole lunch it was extraordinary experience and then at the end of the day he asked me would i like a job i said yeah of course and so i went home to mum and i said i'm gonna move to sydney and she said no you're not (laughs) it wasn't until six months later that mum and dad kind of felt like they were happy to see me off so i was 17 and i called peter and i said you know can i have that job now he said, well, we just won restaurant of the year and everybody wants to work here. So unfortunately, we have to miss out this time. So I took another job in Sydney with Luke Mangan at Glass Brasserie at the Hilton. And yeah, I did my second year of my cooking there. So after that sort of the six months, you know, restaurant of the year, did you go back to Peter then? I was at Glass and that was a 240-seat brasserie. It was a juggernaut and such a good learning kitchen of more French technique. And at that time, 14 years ago or something you had to learn french cookery that was very much the what was in vogue and you know to get your stripes so to speak at the end of my time at glass i was kind of craving working for peter like i really wanted to get there and he ended up calling me and he said he's still interested in that job i said absolutely and he goes do you want to come and do a trial or do you want me to just put you on the roster? I said, put me on the roster, I'll be there. So <laughs> took the job and yeah, amazing. And I was there for 18 months and Peter kind of, we both had a conversation around my desire to cook fish. Like I was just watching the people in S restaurant cooking fish and handling fish. And, you know, it was fascinating to see that it was the person with the sharpest knives and with the greatest eye for detail. And it was just interesting to see that it took somebody with such acumen and intelligence to be handling the fish because it was such an extraordinary ingredient that came in at such a price. And usually... 
the sous chef or the head chef was the one that was putting the knife through it to portion it as opposed to the chap in the back scaling and doing all the tedious tasks of it. It's always been put on that pedestal of as the chef's job, like putting a knife through foie gras or like yeah. shaving the truffles. You know, there's no commies out there doing that. Was there a certain point as, as you moved up, you know, yeah. through the hierarchy that mm. you were allowed to start, you know, go beyond the scaling the yeah. and move up towards, you know, the, this sort of uh, exalted role of actually the yeah. magic with the fish? No, and I think that's what S provided. But at the time, we had all these chefs at S restaurant working in this, you know, famed restaurant that were all ready to kill one another to get on, you know, the best <laughs> sections of the kitchen, like any good kitchen, I suppose. I said to Peter, I really want to just go and focus on fish. Is there someone you would suggest that I work with? in a more intimate learning environment that's not 16 boys running around in a kitchen. His brother owned a famous restaurant there, peer restaurant, Greg Doyle. He said, you don't want to work with him because he's a lunatic. <laughs> so we'll maybe put you in this place called Fish Face. I met Stephen again at another fundraiser, Cancer Foundation lunch, and he gave me a gift voucher and I had an experience at Fish Face at a very young age with my dad and we ate all the food and I thought it was unbelievable. But the intensity of the kitchen, how manual everything was, there was no brigade. It was like Stephen, who the owner was, he was cooking at probably what he was, 40, you know, had one person next to him, another sushi chef next to him and then a wash up. And it was just, he was an animal in every sense of the word, the most technically correct fish chef that I've ever seen. To work under his guidance for a number of years as his second chef was the most formative part of my learning with regards to fish because he showed me where to find it, how to handle it, not to put water on it, all of those things. Nothing to do with dry aging or fish offal usage or butchery breakdowns and all those things that we've kind of started doing ourselves. We see everyone, you know, with the fish. The fishmonger has the running water at all time, always, yes. you know, rubbing it off. But mm. then you say you know, a wet fish is a bad fish. Why is that? I find it fascinating that we all seem to think that because it's come out of water, it should stay in water to a degree. I understand that there needs to be correct temperature control with fish. The cold chain management of fish is so important from the point of capture through to you taking it out of your bag at home to then put it in your fry pan or whatever you'll do with it. It's important that that temperature stays constant. There's a organic compound in fish called trimethylamine. When the fish dies, it converts into trimethylamine oxide. And then as that breaks down, it converts into ammonia. And ammonia is fishy fish. And that's that aroma that everybody is just hates, basically. And that's the conversation at Fish Butchery in St. Peter. What's your least fishy fish? And we don't have fishy fish because we don't have the interactions of water. The water that comes out of a tap is by no means zero degrees. Like especially, you know, back in Australia, I can think that it was around 14 to 16 degrees Celsius. And that's going over the top of the fish. A fish is porous. The scales of a fish are porous. It's like a sponge. It just absorbs water. Water carries aromas. And when a fish starts breaking down and this ammonia becomes present, the only way of offsetting ammonia compounds is using acidic ingredients. Hence why we've got a repertoire dating back hundreds of years using acidic ingredients with our fish. The token gesture of half a lemon on a plate, Berblanc sauce, hollandaise, you know, the list goes on. And it's fascinating to have that knowledge. And again, we're keeping on ice. Is that, I mean, is, is it fine if it's cold, you know, below zero? The wonder of some beautiful fishmongers all around the world. 
with these wonderful ice stands with fish piled up on it. I'm totally against that in every sense of it. I know that some people are trying. I've seen lately there's the the traditional ice counter, but then like sheets over the top of it so that it's not directly in contact with it. Totally fine, as long as there's no direct contact with the water, with the ice. But at Fish Butchery, the way we've designed it is a glass box and the marble that we've got within that box has got a little bit of copper wrapped underneath and it keeps everything chilled. These are quite revolutionary, the things you're saying. Obviously, mm. you can prove them by the taste, by the texture yes. and everything else. But yeah. did you find traditional fishmongers going, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, yeah, sort of really finding, finding, you know, abusing you, saying, yeah. this, this young guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We've been doing this for 50 years. Yeah, the system has worked in a way for so long and it celebrates quantity over quality very much so. The people, like even here now in the UK, working with flying fish, bringing fish to Fortnum's for me, they're going to the ends of the earth to to get you a product which is just straight from the water, and that's extraordinary. That's something here that's done very well. It's something in Australia that's done very well where they, they get the fish and they give it to you in the best possible condition, but then once it's in your hands as a wholesaler, as a market owner, as wherever you are, that's where we're falling over, I feel, that, you know, the handling of the fish is just so poor. Even if we feel like we're doing the right thing and we're washing bacteria or we're washing sediment away, have you ever walked into a meat butcher and seen them take apart a carcass and then dip it in a pool of water in front of them? No. No. <laughs> and have you ever seen, like, the first grouse of a season get taken their organs out and then everything's washed and, you know, flooded out? It's absurd to even consider doing that. So why... Do we continue to normalize putting water all over fish? The shelf life that's accustomed to everybody, which is that two to three to four maybe day window, you know, that can be flipped on its head. I'm aging fish for up to one month without the use of any preservatives or salt. And the idea is not to provoke funky, you know, cheesy collagen breakdown kind of things that happen with meat aging. That's not the intention. The intention is to find a moment where the fish tastes better than it did on day one, or it tastes of the actual fish itself. If you eat a fish off the back of a boat, the second you catch it, it will really taste of nothing other than, you know, the ocean water and things like that. And oftentimes it gets, you know, dipped in soy and wasabi and that's the best fish experience you've ever had in your life. And I think it's because it's null of any ammonia or any fishiness. What I've found is the composition of the fillet gives me the understanding of then how long I'll mature certain fish. So when you look at a fillet, all those lines in the fillet, every one of those lines represents one of the fish's muscle. So the closer those muscles are together, the more dense, the more oily, the more compact the fish is, the more opportunity of time you have. Going back to your career, you, you came over to the UK for a few months to do a stage at the Fat Duck with yeah. Eston Blumenthal. And did you live in London or? So yeah, it was eight years ago and it was, um, <laughs> again, a funny one. Like it was a working honeymoon. <laughs> so it was just after I got married. My wife, who's a chef as well, Julie, she, because it took so long for the Fat Duck to get back to me about getting this stage, I felt like it was too late a notice to try to get Julie in as well. So Luke Mangan from Glass, he organized uh, the Rue family to get her into the waterside. And so not a bad compromise around the compromise. No. So she went round to the waterside. I, I came to the duck. Turned out Julie eventually came across to do pastry at, at the duck as well. So we were living just outside of Bray. So we were very much, we we're in the inner sanctum of, you know, Heston's world. 
because you walk past anywhere in Brighton, Heston's got it. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a playground. It was an incredible experience. And I, I worked in the lab developing the Heston at Home cookbook with Otto Roma and James Petrie. And, the jockey was there. Yeah, jockey. Yeah. And, you know, it's very formal to call him James Petrie. But, yeah, <laughs> jockey um, had me under his wing. So working at the Fat Duck, I felt like it was almost a compromise to be pushed into the corner and be told to do the domestic cookbook testing because I felt like I'd flown all that way to see bacon and egg ice cream and snail porridge. So I think it was the most important part of, you know, the trip to focus on, you know, an egg for a month and focus on chocolate for a month and focus on meat. And that was such a tangible thing that I could take home and actually implement into my style of cooking like i mean to learn something so hyper specific using centrifuges and liquid nitrogen and all those things that's very difficult to translate back into you know a sydney market and you know no one can be heston heston is heston and then which point you went back to oz Mm. and when did you open st peter Uh, it was a number of years later i got to work in and around other kitchens and and i felt like i was trying to develop my own not my own voice a little bit like that and trying to work out your place and and what you want to focus on but as well learning how to be a manager because i feel like that's the one part that's missing in most college training for a chef is you know what does a food cost mean what does labor cost mean and how do you deal with people whose you know family members move to another country and then they're distraught for a week all those things that you need to pick up as a skill before thinking about going and opening your own place and so I was lucky that I got you know all that education and then we opened St Peter September the 1st in 2016 we're three years in now and it's been uh you know a a wild ride because I mean the 12 months leading up to finding this space where we were I had a partner for that business and it was another chef and yeah we were going to do it and then I think it got to the pointy end of it and I gained more confidence in what was in my head and I managed to gain the capital to do the production myself so I kind of said look I want to go about this myself and it was well received and handed over to me and I went to my solicitors the next morning to sign the lease they dropped down a pages the size of my book onto the table and said all right have you got a pen I said no I don't and then she goes all right I'll go and get one she left her office and I threw up in her bin (laughs) and then um, everything became very real at that point and I left having signed this lease and then sat in my car for half an hour to um, just calm down a little bit because I was so nervous the first day of receiving fish at St. Peter we spent something four and a half thousand Australian dollars on fish on the first day and that scared the life out of me Hence the desire to take photos of the fish that was coming through the doors for Instagram and to hopefully encourage and excite people around the kind of fish that we'd be playing with. I did have a rapport with a lot of Sydney's kind of, you know, dining scene because of my time at Fish Face and there was trust there that if I was going to say that I'm aging fish or if I'm going to use fish offal and do these different things, there was an audience there that was supportive and, you know, that was really integral to the success of St. Peter that we had a full dining room in the first week of opening. A few months in, we kind of got very tired because we were so short in the kitchen out of probably fear by myself of not wanting to put too many bodies in there. But again, like we're, we're cooking out of a shoebox at St. Peter. It's quite a small space. Is there anything here that you find that you, you can't get over in Oz that, that you yeah. love as a fish? Well, I mean, I've had my hands on a lot of sea bass and, and looking at that fish in terms of the flesh and everything, it reminds me quite a bit of striped trumpeter back home, which again is another one of those elite fish. So sea bass is extraordinary fish. 
I love these sardines that are here because they're coming out of such cold water and there's so much fat within them. I think the flatfish, like, you know, the, the turbots and the place and the brill and, you know, all these wonderful flatfish, like we don't have the luxury of those fish. We have greenback flounders and from New Zealand we have yellow belly flounders, but by no means do they carry the fat and gelatin and collagen that these tremendous fish do over here. If you had to name your top three or four fish, are there any fish, a couple of fish? I know that they're all your children. You yeah, them equally. Right. Are there a few fish that you love working with? Yeah, um, I love working with red mullet or rouge or babunya. Like that fish is just extraordinary and it's poor man's lobster to most. Like it's, um, it's just, it tastes like you're eating, you know, a wonderful lobster or a wonderful prawn. And especially when you grill it over charcoal, it's kind of, you know, out of body experience if it's done well. The other one's a herring. We've got herring back home, which is called Australian herring, but also known as Tommy Ruff, um, which is a great name. I think Tommy Ruff, again, is just uh, underutilized fish. Herring in general, I think, is really underutilized and, and even it gets cornered too much in history, like what you're talking about with Italy and France. And I just think, you know, if it's herring, the assumption is that it's, you know, quite strong. It's pickled. Not overly delicious. It's kind of something that you watch your mother eat or, yeah, yeah, or your your grandparents ate or whatever. But I feel like to crumb a herring, to take all the bones from it, to crumb it and pan fry it. And, you know, even if you want to be as simple as putting it on white bread with, um, you know, ketchup like you do over here a lot or a tartare sauce or something. I think that's a really lovely way of eating it. But even again, to grill it over charcoal, I think it's, um, a fish to be celebrated. And then the other one, like English mackerel here and also mackerel back home, I think. I see a lot of mackerel over here getting grilled whole, like baked whole even. Maybe that's something that everybody's accustomed to eating here. I don't think it's a lazy way of cooking it, but I feel like to take the bones from something and to to invest some time into that process, people on the receiving end appreciate that so much more and they see so much more value from it and previously perceived as being really cheap, bony fish. You can transform it into something that's um, highly desirable when it's cooked correctly but I feel like as well mackerel can oftentimes be very overcooked when really you only need to cook it on the skin and then turn the raw side of the fish onto a warm plate and then you're off and and so. this is the book that that is you know the whole fish is, is a fascinating book but there are recipes in there that you really do need you know perhaps like some of Heston's books you need to be in a professional kitchen but what I yes. took away from it was things like you were just talking about cooking on the skin and turning it onto a warm plate yes. these are things for everyday cooking that makes fish cookery a lot less scary and yes. is, is that what you were hoping to do the agenda with this book, like in a nutshell, was to bring forward what fish means in 2019. The wheel has always turned a certain way for a very long time and we've never thought to stop the wheel and turn it back the other way because, like I said before, there's always been this celebrating quantity over quality. I wanted to chapterize the book into methods in the back when it came to the recipes. So I did want to give people a little bit of confidence with regards to a, a method of cookery, which was outside the realm of always just pan frying something or wrapping it in paper and then baking it in the oven. And I did try to build the recipe so that it came at its most simplest form at the very front of the recipe. And we called it the essentials, the one, two, three. I was trying to be as articulate as I could with the very intimate details that sometimes I feel like I'd be, you know, driving my chefs mad if I told them every single thing that I wrote into the book, but I'm glad I put it on paper because there are some things in there that are so important to having a great result. It seems, again, to be humorous to say so, but I, I feel like this book really needs to be read 
from the beginning. Don't yeah. even try to cook a recipe from this book. The recipes are such a byproduct of the meaning of this book to do as some media bodies have done and take the Tadakan out of it and give it a crack for the <laughs> just, first just time. Ex- just to explain, yeah. the uh, Tadakan is, we all know what the Tadakan is, is where you the put the duck in the turkey. Yeah. <laughs> this is the fish version and it is possibly not one that you'd start. It's no. quite near the back, isn't it? The conversation firstly around how to handle a fish and, and the potential of different storage and all of that chat is so important to grasp first before uh, going to the back and even read that one and then go back and read, you know, some really amazing fish books of our time. Like read Rick's fish book, read Nathan's fish book. All those books are phenomenal and like I draw so much inspiration from it. But it would be fascinating to take some of what I'm saying and then apply them into, you know, the logic of these wonderfully celebrated cooks like I imagine, you know, it'd be an interesting, you know, test to have a look at what the results might be. But they'll be doing that. Great chefs are always evolving anyway. Correct. So to learn from, you know, even Rick, Rick would be the first to say that he's always learning. He's always finding new things. Nathan, yeah. will be a bit younger, is the same. You know, yeah. they're always looking and learning. And from- it's been wonderful to have interactions with them so far. And it's been wonderful to have them both write little notes on my book. It's the lack of ego from, from these guys that are wanting to learn. Like it's... It's very flattering and and wonderful, and you've just found the. I'm just looking the at a picture, at the, the, a picture of <laughs> of of a, of a bass grouper, which has been cut down into well, it says 31 pieces. But looking at it, it is the most. It's almost like those Nathan Blumfeld um, pictures, you know, when everything in the in, in the in modern cuisine. But they are. It's just stunning what you can get from this fish, right down to everything they're very rare you can say a book is a game changer but it is a game changer not trying to be no, clever but just yeah. just use every single part and, yes. and and aging as ever you know our, our time together is coming to an end but before we go i'd like to run through a series of quick questions that we'll be asking each of our podcast guests given this is a fortnum's podcast describe your perfect cup of tea oh earl gray with a splash of milk and a, a very small amount of sugar tiny bit just because I, I loved Heston's Earl Grey tea ice cream and I think that made me assume Earl Grey was sweet. What's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? What's, what's one of the greatest meals? I know you've eaten many, but are there any that stick in your mind? If I can give you two answers. Yeah. One one is the meal that I had at Saison in San Francisco quite a few years ago. I think I was 24 years old and, and there was the original space that Joshua Skeens had. So it was literally like walking down somebody's backyard and then you get to the end of it and you get sat down. And I just can remember the, the things that made that meal so extraordinary was not only the, the perfect ingredients that he'd gone out and found, but the temperature in which it had all been served. I feel like if it was three seconds either side of the time that he had given it to us to eat, it wouldn't have been as good. But everything was so sharp and so perfect. And, you know, to finish a meal with a little cannelay served in a box made out of cinnamon was just absurd from a professional point of view that but then to live 15 minutes away from where my grandparents lived and have my mother say oh we're going to bring kids out and we'll see you shortly and then we would arrive there and then in the time that it took for us to drive from like our house to her house she'd already managed to make scones and be pulling them out of the oven as we walked in there'd be butter there there'd be jam there and the butter was real butter from a cow down the road and you know the jam was made from fruit trees close by and you know and then I would take that and then go and sit next to my pop and watch the cricket that's probably exceeds the meal it stays on from from an emotive point of view but yeah they're two very special memories what has been your biggest disaster in the kitchen 
Well, biggest disaster physically um, was as a first-year apprentice where I put my knife through my hand. Ah, whereabouts? Uh, I was in the lower part under my thumb and uh, I got told to cut a block of butter earlier in the day and then I didn't get to it, but the butter stayed on the bench for part of the day. During service then, my chef ran out of butter and he said, did you cut that butter? And I said, no. And then he was in a huff trying to get his work done and I didn't do it. And I ran over to this block of butter that had now become, you know, quite warm on the outside and the the rest is history. Do you listen to music at all while, while you're cooking? Yeah, no, yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And what's the, what's your favourite music? I like Sam Cooke. Like, I love Sam Cooke and Edda James and Ray Charles and all of that music. Like, I'm I'm a very big fan of that. It's quite comforting to cook to that music as well in the restaurant. And, you know, I had this real weird moment when we opened St. Peter where at last came on with Edda James and we were like so full and we had reviewers in the room and there was a bit of a queue outside. And I remember grabbing this fish weight down that we cook with to pull down onto a piece of fish and it felt like I went into slow motion and this song all I could hear was the song as opposed to the dining room I just thought to myself how cool like everything was and like how I'd kind of managed to tick this big life box of having a restaurant and getting to do what I've kind of always wanted to do so it was very cool okay keeping it clean and food related Mm. what's your guilty pleasure I think a really beautiful cut of meat you know, for a guy that handles and cooks and cuts and tastes fish every day of the week, to have like a beautiful piece of meat that's been handled so well and, you know, a bit of a shout out to Anthony Pulharich, you know, at Victor Churchill Meats. Oh, I love that home. And again, shot. somebody who's written a truly significant book in the meat book. I find myself on a Monday when I'm when I'm off and I'll take my daughter with me because she's a, as geeky about food as I am, who's only four years old, but she she knows where the good steak's from. You know, to go and get a great piece of meat, like an actually great, delicious, well-handled cut of steak to then take home and cook on my barbecue, that's a luxury and that's a wonderful thing. No chicken twisties, no. Tim Tams, Polly Pies. <laughs> I'm not into it. <laughs> You're very pure. No, yeah, none of that yeah. wonderful Australian junk food. Uh, no, I, I learned the hard way as a, as a kid. You know, when, when you start getting a little bit chunky at the age of 14, you kind of think to pump the brakes on all that stuff. So. <laughs> okay, and finally, if you were hosting a dinner party and can invite three people, who would you invite to be at that table? And of course, besides your family. I would say Fergus because I feel like he would offer up some pretty good chat <laughs> and um, <laughs> he'd keep the wine flowing, I feel, as well. <laughs> yeah. um, he's just a fascinating man who, who I'd love to pick his brain. The other one, if he was still about, Anthony Bourdain because, again, well-travelled, just fascinating man that I wish that I would have had an opportunity to have met him. And Sophie Pick from... Um, La Mason Pick. Who's just got her second star over here, actually. In, yeah, in I she, I find her fascinating and her food is just, I don't know, to say a feminine is probably a disservice, but it's so beautiful, it's so pretty and the ingredients are just flawless and I just find her really unique. And if not, if she couldn't make it, then Claire Smith, because again, I find her incredibly articulate and talented and sounds patronizing for me to say talented, but I'm in awe of what she does and what she has done in her, in her uh, life. Well, that brings our fascinating conversation to a close. Huge thanks to Josh. And thank you to everyone who has tuned in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Fortland Hungry Minds, to hear conversations and spirited debate around new ideas, knowledge and the joy of real food.